Your argument next in case 0643, Stone Ridge Investment Partners versus Scientific Atlanta et al. Mr. Grossman. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The text of Section 10B, as well as the rule 10B-5 promulgated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, prohibit the use of any deceptive device by any person, indirectly or indirectly, in connection with the purchase or sale of a security. The various deceptive devices used by the respondents in this case is conduct that is squarely covered by the text of the statute and by the rule. Respondents here were not passive bystanders facilitating a fraud by charter. Their deceptive conduct was integral to the scheme to create fictitious advertising revenues for charter to report to investors. Respondents agreed to overcharge charter so that they could receive the money from charter to then return to it for the advertising, using charter's very same money for the purchase of the advertising. Respondent Scientific Atlanta created a document falsely claiming that the reason for the increased payments from charter were because of increased manufacturing expenses. The, the transaction was not wholly without benefit to Scientific Atlanta. Uh, they got some advertising. Well, that, and it was not wholly without benefit to charter. Uh, they were able to show that advertising works. Now, that puts aside the fact that they were using misleading accounting principles. Well, well, I would agree, Your Honor, that uh, they received uh, free advertising, but the problem was that they were creating the illusion that it wasn't free advertising, but rather that they were purchasing the advertising. And was the price four to five times higher than the normal rates for advertising? The, that, that is correct, Justice Ginsburg. And, 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 and the obvious purpose uh, for creating the illusion that they were purchasing the advertising rather than receiving free advertising was so that Charter can incorporate these increased revenues in their financial statements. <laughs> and respondents understood, they understood that in order to, for Charter to pass this by their accountants, to deceive the accountants, and this, this is reflected in the indictment, in order to the, deceive the, the, the accountants for Charter, the respondents were told that there had to be separate agreements for both the advertising agreements and the purchase. Mr. Grossman, is, is there any reason why, uh, in principle, the uh, elements <coughs> for a cause of action under 10b-5 <coughs> have to be the same as the elements for uh, a cause of action by the agency under 10b. <coughs> I mean, we, we created this, uh, this uh, cause of action. It's not set forth in the statute, although other private causes of action are. If it's our creation, couldn't we uh, uh, sensibly limit it uh, so that, for example, schemes uh, can be attacked by the SEC, but schemes do not uh, uh, form the basis for uh, private attorney general's actions? Uh, you need uh, actual uh, uh, Conveyance of a, of a misrepresentation to the to the injured party. Is there any reason why we couldn't do that? Well, uh, I, I think there are two reasons, uh, Your Honor. Uh, <clears throat> the, the first is that at this point in time, I think as the court recognized in Dura uh, fairly recently, that when Congress uh, enacted the Private Security Law Reform Act, uh, that at that time uh, they accepted the private right of action that this Court had previously inferred. And this Court had pre previously inferred the private right of action, not only for the section, but each of the rules in section. But, it, but it's not like under the Sherman Act, where we have reason to think Congress intended the Court to go about the business of construing and developing antitrust law. In fact, they've kind of taken over for us. They're imposing certain limits on when actions can be brought, imposing particular elements. In one of the provisions, 20E, specifying the SEC can bring an action, but private investors can't. Isn't, I mean, we don't get in this business of implying private rights of action anymore 
Uh, and isn't the effort by Congress to legislate a good signal that they've kind of picked up the ball and they're running with it and we shouldn't? Well, well, well but this, this Court, Your Honor, uh, uh, as recently as 2002 in Wharf Holding, said there is a private right of action for violation of any of the subdivisions of Rule 10b-5, A, B, or C. Uh, that would have to be reversed. Going back to the superintendent of insurance case in, uh, in uh, uh, th that would be in uh, 1971, Your Honor. The court held it was a private right of action for a violation of. Well, that's kind of my point. We did, that, we did that sort of thing in 1971. We haven't done it for quite some time. But when Congress enacted the Private Security Law Reform Act, everything it did in connection with that statute was directed to the private right of action that this Court had previously implied under 10B. Uh, nothing that Congress did uh, <coughs> was intended in any way. I'm not — my suggestion is not that we should go back and <coughs> say there's no private right of action. My suggestion is that we should get out of the business of expanding it, because Congress has taken over and is legislating in the area in a way they weren't back when we implied the right of action uh, under 10B? Well, I, <coughs> I would agree. Congress has taken it over. And when they enacted the Private Security Law Reform Act, they recognized this private right of action. Everything they did uh, recognized the private right of action. It recognized that there would be multiple primary violators of uh, 10B. Uh, it did that in connection with proportionate liability provisions, it recognized that there would be multiple players. So certainly Congress had an understanding of what this Court had done up until that time. And this Court up until that time had implied the private right of action for every subset of Rule 10b-5. Is it, is it a necessary part of your theory that the deceptive practice that Scientific Atlanta went in, that they knew that that was also the Charter would carry that forward? I mean, let's suppose that there were benefits to this deceptive practice to Scientific Atlanta, that it looked like it had more money to spend on advertising than it really did. Mm -hmm. But they didn't care what Charter did with it. In fact, they didn't know that Charter was going to carry it on its books the way they did. Would there still be liability uh, uh, no. for Scientific Atlanta? No, no. Well, not, not on the, the test that we've proposed, which is very similar to the test proposed by the Ninth Circuit in the, or applied in the Ninth Circuit in the Simpson case, and the test proposed by the Securities and Exchange Commission in their amicus brief submitted in, uh, uh, in the Simpson case, uh, it's not enough to just have the Deceptive Act. Uh, the Deceptive ha Act for scheme liability has to be with the purpose of furthering a scheme to defraud investors. So if Scientific Atlanta or Motorola had engaged in deceptive conduct, but that deceptive conduct was not intended to further a scheme to defraud the shareholders. No, Your Honor. There, there, there would be no action under the theory that we're uh, pursuing here. Uh, in, in intended or, or known? I mean, I don't see what's well, I, 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 I Atlanta to defraud uh, the shareholders. Is it enough that they just knew it would be used for that purpose? Oh, it, it, it would be enough. If they, if they committed a deceptive act and they knew it was in furtherance of a scheme. Well, when you say in furtherance of, yes. you, 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 you import uh, intent. They yes. didn't care what, yes. uh, what Charter was going to do with it, but they, they pretty well knew that what Charter was going to do was to make its books look better. Well, I, I, I think, it, would that be enough? I, I think that would be reckless. And that's what I thought your position was. Yes, but my so position it's is also — not an intent, necessarily. It's just knowledge. Cer certainly needs scienter. You certainly need scienter. No, that's I mean, it's more than knowledge. I mean, you, you mentioned recklessness. Yes. It's got to have uh, either knowledge of or, or a, a willingness to, to maintain an indifference to the consequence. That, exactly right, Justice Sue. And, 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 and I think it's important, and, and, and there's, a very, there's a very good discussion of this in the uh, Simpson case by the Ninth Circuit, that the purpose of the test uh, is such that it will not ensnare someone who does engage in a deceptive act but doesn't understand that the reason for it is to further a scheme. Sure, after trial, you know, after, <laughs> after trial, which causes your stock to, to no. tank, uh, I, I you you may a, indeed be able to show that uh, that you didn't know it was going to be used for that purpose. I mean, that's what this is all about, isn't it? Getting it, getting it by the uh, summary judgment stage. 
No, I, I, I think, Your Honor, that uh, this Court answered this uh, last term in the Telabs case, uh, and Congress answered that question that you pose in, uh, in the PSLRA, the Private Security Law Reform Act, so that you cannot just bring a case and hope to get it by the summary judgment stage. You have to have particularized facts alleged under the heightened pleading standards of the PSLRA and this Court's decision in Telabs, showing that not only the deceptive act, but that the purpose of that deceptive act was to further a scheme. So, no, you can't what, just what, you, what, what has to be alleged uh, short of uh, on, on information and belief uh, the defendant knew that, uh, uh, that this uh, information would appear on the balance sheets and be used uh, to uh, improve the status of, uh, of uh, the stock. Well, of course, if you just, what? if you just allege it on information and belief, you're out of court. Uh, no doubt about that. That doesn't pass the heightened pleading standard in Telabs or the PSLRA. What you do need is what we have here. Here you have uh, allegations, and, and, and we didn't make these allegations from whole cloth. These allegations were derived principally from a grand jury and the federal grand jury indictment against charter executives. And that indictment says, that the respondents were informed that in order to deceive charters accountants, they had to have why, why shouldn't we be guided by what Congress did in reaction to the central bank case? There we said there's no aiding and abetting liability. Congress amended the statute in 20E to say, yes, there is, but private plaintiffs can't sue on that basis. Uh, why shouldn't that inform how we uh, — further develop the private action under 10b-5? Well, I, th I think if Congress intended uh, under 20E certainly to bar private actions similar to this, it would have said uh, that only the SEC has the authority to bring a claim for substantial assistance, whether or not it involves deceptive conduct. They could have very easily said any deceptive conduct, uh, and that would have barred these claims. They, they, were specific, they were addressing a very specific decision from this Court, the central bank decision. And the one thing they did not do is say that that decision was wrong with respect to private or going forward. They weren't going to overrule that decision with respect to private rights of action. You're asking us to extend to non — I know you call it a primary violator, but uh, not the person who — Secondary actors. — who put the uh, deceptive conduct into the market. You're asking us to extend that liability to them, which seems inconsistent with Congress's approach in 20E. We're not asking any extension. Quite the contrary, Your Honor. I think that is the respondents that are asking for a narrowing. When Congress, when Congress addressed the PSLRA, it addressed all of the, all of the arguments that we hear. We're hearing today from respondents and their amici. Is your, th is your theory dependent on the proposition that um, Scientific Atlanta and Motorola deceived Arthur Anderson? That, that, that certainly is a large part of it, yes, Your Honor. But didn't you allege exactly the opposite in your complaint? No. We, 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 I, I, I think what you're referring to is that, uh, uh, is, is that the accountants uh, should have uh, conducted a more diligent audit than they did. I mean, these people clearly we're trying to deceive the auditors. Why else would you issue a document falsely stating a reason for a pricing? Well, I'm looking at paragraph 218 of your amended complaint, 109A of the Joint Appendix, um, subsection 4. It says, uh, speaking of Arthur Anderson, though aware that Charter was seeking to boost its revenues by paying vendors higher prices at the same time it received additional advertising, from the same vendors, Anderson failed to properly audit these uh, transactions by confirming them with the vendors. Right. Well, so you alleged that they weren't deceived. You alleged that they knew exactly what was going on. No, oh, no. They, you run up. They, they, they knew that they were paying uh, the vendors higher prices, uh, but they didn't know why. The, the contract the contract for the higher prices was followed by this misstatement saying the reason for the higher prices is because of increased uh, manufacturing expenses, when, in fact, that wasn't the reason. The reason who, was who, to take who money. Told, who told um, Charter that it was necessary for them to have a time spread between the contract, the $20 above the contract price, and the advertising uh, payment? Author Anderson. Well, if it — 
told them that, didn't it have — it sounds to me from that that if the accountant says, look, if you want to make this appear on the balance sheet as though the advertising revenues were just ordinary advertising re- re- revenues, you better s- s- separate these two. That suggests that Arthur Anderson knew all along what was going on. No, uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg, what Arthur Anderson did not know, and this is very clear, they did not know that it was Charter's own money that was being used by the respondents to purchase the advertising. They were deceived by that document that said, we are increasing the price on the set-top boxes because of increased manufacturing expense. That was false. The reason they were increasing it is because Charter was delivering the money to them. But that's exactly the thing they told them to separate. No, but not for that reason, Your Honor. Uh, well, for what other if, reason? The reason is as follows. Uh, <clears throat> this is what they refer to as barter contracts, two companies exchanging things, which is perfectly legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and there are certain ways to account for it properly. And what Arthur Anderson was telling Charter was in order to be able to have uh, revenues, included gross revenues, you'd have to have unrelated, unrelated contracts. They couldn't be a barter transaction. But there is no way, no way that you could recognize the advertising revenues if you're using Charter's own money, and that's what Arthur Anderson did not do. It would be no different, Justice Scalia, if Charter delivered a suitcase filled with cash and gave it to them and said, okay, buy the advertising from us. I, I that's understand all what you're did. saying. It, it, it seems to me that when you say that, uh, uh, that they can't be connected, you're saying precisely you can't be bartering the advertising revenue for the, uh, you know, for the increased uh, money that you're paying. No, you could, you could barter. You could barter. It's just a question of how you account for it. But the bartering is one thing. I mean, that, that, that's one accounting principle relating to bartering. But there is no accounting you, principle that permits the recording of revenue if you're using the money from the seller. Right, just, and that's why they disguise Just to be clear on this, if, if Charter and Arthur Anderson and Scientific Atlanta and Motorola all sat down and cooked up this scheme together, and they all knew exactly what was going on, would you have a, a claim against the respondents here? Yes. And, and the reason for that, Your Honor, is because the advertising contract was a sham, and the advertising contract was a sham because Charter was giving the respondents the money to buy the advertising. Then, then I see absolutely no difference between your test and uh, the elements of aiding and abetting. Oh. The, the, different, the difference because is here we would have a deception. You just said that it's not necessary for there to be a, a, an actual deceptive act on the part of the respondents. There has to be deception. There is a deception. The deception is you're entering into an advertising contract that presents the illusion that you are purchasing advertising when, in fact, you are not purchasing the advertising. But that's, not the, fraud that went, but that's not the fraud that was imposed upon the market. The fraud that was imposed on the market was charters accounting for the transaction um, uh, on its books. Nobody bought or sold stock in reliance upon the way that Scientific Atlanta and Charter structured their deal. They did so in reliance on the way that Charter communicated its accounting to the marketplace. There, there was no way, no way that that could properly be accounted for. And the respondents understood that, and that's why they did what they did. That's but what there are, but any, you're saying there are any number of kickbacks and mismanagement and, and, and petty frauds that go on in the business, and business people know that any publicly held company's shares are going to be affected by its profits. So I, I, I see no, uh, no limit, limitation to your, I, I think, to your proposal for liability. Well, I, I think the limitations are as follows, Your Honor. <laughs> Number one, there has to be the purpose of furthering a scheme to defraud shareholders. Number two, uh, the test has an element of materiality, that it cannot be well, a market. I, I, I agree with Justice Scalia's earlier comment. I, I, I don't think that Scientific Atlanta and, and Motorola really cared anything, one way or the other, about the investors. Well, that, that may be but that for they them didn't care about made, the a certain amount of sense. They, they, they didn't really care. Well, they may not have cared, but that would be reckless, because they, they, they certainly understood. But that's far different from, not, from having a purpose 
You said they have to have a purpose. That, that's correct. And if you just close your eyes, if somebody comes to you and says, look, we want, to, we want you to enter into this transaction, it's a phony transaction, uh, and, and they say, well, we don't care. Well, you, you do whatever you want with that. And they know it's a publicly held corporation, and they, they have every reason to understand that this information. Which goes back to my earlier question, that most people that engage in, in frauds on business know that it's, if it's a publicly held corporation, it's going to hurt the price of the shares or affect the price of the shares. Well, then they shouldn't engage in schemes to defraud. That's what Congress intended by Section 10. But I, are you, as I understand your argument, it is that the difference between aiding and abetting liability on the part of the respondents uh, and, and liability as, in effect, as, as first-line principles uh, is, is their intent, uh, or, or at very least their knowledge, that they were committing a deceptive act as part of the scheme. Is that correct? That they have to commit the deceptive act yes. with the requisite intent. That's correct. Yes. Now, how many times are, are parties in the position of the respondents ever going to engage in those acts except with exactly the state of mind that, on your judgment, makes them principles rather than, than aiders and abettors? Well, it's not, it's not on my judgment. It has to be pled with the particularity required by the PSLRA. It no, no I realize that you have to plead it. What I'm, what I'm getting at is, are you making a distinction that in the real world is not a distinction, that in, in, in reality no one is going to do what these respondents did without the kind of knowledge or intent that makes them, on your theory, principles rather than aiders and abettors. No, there, there, there are cases, uh, I think, Your Honor, where, uh, where they can engage in deceptive conduct uh, and there would not be the purpose to, uh, to defraud shareholders. For instance, uh, a charter may have come to them and said, look, do me a favor, uh, says a sales manager, I want to make my numbers for this period so I could take my wife on a trip to Hawaii that the company will give me. Um, so the company gives them a phony, a phony order, thinking that that's the purpose of it. That's the purpose of the phony order to help this guy along. Well, you've engaged in a deceptive act, may be deceptive under 10B, but you wouldn't satisfy the purpose test because the purpose. In other words, it's deceptive, but not deceptive in relation to or for right. the purpose of deceiving the petitioner. But don't uh, aiders and abettors have to have that purpose as well? What distinguishes uh, what distinguishes uh, the liability that you propose from aider and abetter liability? You have to engage in a deceptive act. On the 10B, 10B prohibits any deceptive act. I thought act. you were telling me that in each case they, the, they, there may be a deceptive act, but not a deceptive act in relation to somebody like the petitioner here. Exactly. But that's a different answer, I think, from the one you were just giving Justice Scalia. No, I, I, I understood, perhaps mistakenly from Justice Scalia, uh, that there wasn't a deceptive act. Uh, in your hypothetical. If there's a deceptive act, then it's prohibited by 10B, and then we move to the next oh, step. A, a, any aiding and abetting through a deceptive act makes you a principal. Is that it? You can't be an, an aider and abetter uh, by uh, committing or enabling a deceptive act without becoming a principal. No. Not at all. You, you, you yourself, you yourself I, have to engage in the deceptive act, your yes, own deceptive act. But, but if you do, or if you should have known, uh, you are not an aider and a better, you are automatically a principal. You may be a principal if you satisfy the other elements of our test, which are serious elements, that you have to plead with particularity, with the heightened pleading standards, I, that they have the purpose to further a scheme to defraud. I, That's very difficult. Is it fair to say that all aiders and abettors who commit deceptive acts are principals? No. What's the difference? What, what separates the difference? test, you have, you have to take it the, the next step further, is whether or not that deceptive act had the purpose and effect of furthering a scheme on investors. Don't you need that to be an aider or abettor? The nader and a better. Uh, you, you, you have to. I mean, have if to I'm entirely innocent, I don't. Well, I don't an aider, an aider, certainly, certainly, the primary violator in the situation that we're discussing, where there are deceptive acts, is aiding and abetting. I mean, if an accountant comes in and deliberately uh, uh, falsifies a financial statement, he's giving substantial assistance to the company's statement, to the company who's issuing those false statements. He would be an aider and a better in that sense. See, I always thought the difference was that the principal is the one who makes the deceptive representation and obtains money from it. 
the aider and abetter is the person who facilitates or enables that deceptive representation, which is what we have here. No. And you say if you facilitate knowingly and intentionally or even grossly negligently, you are not an aider and abetter, but you're a principal. You, I, you, I really don't understand what's the line you, between If the you two. facilitate with a deceptive act, then you're a primary violator. That's what Section 10B prohibits. If you facilitate without a deceptive act, then you're an aider and abetter. Mr. Grossman, before you finish this, right. one uh, no statement made by the other side that you are trying to use this uh, small in comparison to all the fraud that was involved here in order to collect on the entire loss. That is, you are asserting that the vendors are liable for the entire loss when they were just a bit player. Yes. No, we're not seeking that at all, Your Honor. We, uh, the, the PSLRA proportionate liability provisions govern this. With so what are you seeking? We're How would you measure their, your damages? We would measure the damages, number one, that flow from this particular scheme. We would have to first subtract the settlements that have been achieved already, uh, and then the proportionate liability provisions of the PSLRA provide uh, how you make this determination. You look at the particular nature of their conduct, and you look at the extent to which their particular conduct had a causal relationship with the damages. Mr. Gross, I'm conscious of eating into your time, but I, a, a question. How many chains of this connection can you have? Let's say Charter was not a publicly traded company. But the same thing happened with respect to Scientific Atlanta, and that made it look uh, valuable to a company that is publicly traded, so they decided to buy Charter, and then that made their profits look better to investors. Can you — how many chains in the, the link can you go? Well, I, I, I think you can go so long as a person's deceptive conduct has the purpose of furthering a scheme to the fraud. If they engage in some deceptive conduct and it was not in furtherance of the scheme to the fraud, uh, that's the end of the chain. Uh, I w- Thank you, Mr. Grossman. Thank you. Mr. Shapiro. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. My friend has just asked the Court to expand an implied cause of action by diluting traditional requirements such as the reliance requirement and by eroding this Court's precedent in the central bank case. The Court has said in the past that it must be very cautious about expanding implied causes of action. But here, there are special reasons for caution. Expanding the implied cause of action would give plaintiff the very thing that Congress said it should not get in Section 20E of the Exchange Act. Congress wanted cases like this one to be handled by an expert and disinterested administrative agency. That's if you equate this with aiding and abetting. And I think the question is, is there a middle category between Charter, who is clearly primarily liable, and a central bank that didn't do anything deceptive. The the central bank case, I believe, answers that by saying to be a primary violator, you have to satisfy all the prerequisites of 10B liability, including reliance, loss causation, the in-connection with standard. Um, And uh, here plaintiffs failed to meet these tests. And Congress in 20E — But you're saying, I thought your argument, unlike the government's argument, is that there was no deceptive device. There was no deceptive device. They simply aided and abetted. Yes, that's one of the arguments we make. It's, this case is governed by Central Bank because the defendant did not use or employ deception in connection with a securities transaction. That exactly describes what Charter did. Now, what exactly describes what the vendors are alleged to do is what is said in 20E, to knowingly give substantial assistance to someone else that is misleading an investor. That fits this case like a glove. Well, I, thought, I, I agree with Justice Ginsburg. I, I thought the in connection with argument is, is actually in addition to or separate from an additional argument you made that there was no deceptive statement made here. I thought that's, that's what you were arguing. And I, and I have problems with that argument because the statute doesn't require a statement. It requires conduct suffice. We, we, we don't uh, make these arguments without reference to each other. We think all of these statutory terms have to be viewed together. You have to use deception in connection with securities trading, which these vendors did not do. That's what Charter did. And well, you would, don't you, would you say that there was deception standing alone? 
question. Well, well we, we, have, we have suggested that that is not true when you're speaking with somebody that knows the facts, uh, such as Charter. Charter understood all of these facts. Charter could have accounted for these transactions correctly itself. The vendors did that. They didn't uh, recognize any revenues here. It was up to Charter to account for these uh, transactions properly. Congress required it to do that, so but it is Charter the speaker. Charter said, vendors, I need you to consummate this fraud on the public. I can't do it without you. I've got to have those revenues that you're going to give me through these phony advertising payments at four or five times the usual rate. Well, we, we believe even placing that most pejorative characterization on these facts, which we don't agree are the true facts, that still — But you must assume that they are now. Assuming that they are, that this is a 20E situation where it's alleged that the vendors gave substantial knowing assistance to somebody who was committing a fraud. And Congress said that an expert and disinterested administrative agency should decide whether to proceed because it is so slippery to that's apply these are, characterizations. That's they are — and if there were only two categories and everyone who is not charter is an aider and a better, then you're right. But if there's a middle category of people who, while not the benefited company, the company that's trying to achieve the deception, but made it possible for that, for that deception to happen. Well, you know, that's an exact description of Central Bank, because there it was alleged that the trustee entered no, into a in secret Central agreement. No, Central Bank, it was conceded that the bank engaged in no deceptive act. Well, the, Here there's the charge that it did engage in deceptive act. What was conceded was that the bank made no statement to investors, but what was alleged in the complaint and argued in the briefs was that the bank entered into a secret side agreement that enabled the use of a fraudulent prospectus that unleashed securities that were worthless on investors. And investors said we were depending on our trustee to prevent that from happening. Now, I take it, though, you do not defend the position uh, that there must, uh, for 10B liability, that there must have been a statement addressed to investors. Well, we, we think that for, for reliance purposes, there, the defendant well, has to did, communicate with investors. Would you answer my question first? Do you take the position that there can be no 10B liability without a statement addressed to investors? It has to be communicated to the investors, and it has to be attributed under the case law. You mean the, the statement as such or a statement which could not have been made but for the statements of the respondents must be communicated to the investors? That, which one? That kind of but-for causation is not sufficient. That is not reliance. That kind so, of are you, so you are saying that there can be no causation, and hence, in a, in, and I think you're going further, you're saying there can be no liability within the description of 10B unless there is a statement directly addressed to the investors. Is that correct? That is one of our submissions, but we also say that the substance of these statements was never communicated to investors. Only Charter spoke because to the investors the and never summarized it, these. Mr. Shapiro, is yes. if it was communicated to investors that there had been a $20 per set box over the regular price, if there had been advertising that was paid for by the very money that Charter gave, then the whole thing would have failed. So this can work only if the vendors are silent. Silence and not speech is what counts. If the vendors communicate anything at all, the whole thing fails. But the, the communication, Your Honor, has to be to the market and to investors. There was no duty to disclose to investors here. The only communications the vendors made were, we're raising our prices 6 percent. The date of our contract is August 31st for the simple reason that it started the very next day on was September there any, 1st. Was there any economic substance Oh, of course. This? There, there was economic substance from the vendor's perspective. They were selling their products at exactly the price that they wanted to receive for those products. And they were getting some free cooperative advertising thrown in at the same Is time. Is it true that the price that they were charging, they did not charge to other customers the $20 hike? Well, it's true because they weren't concerned with that because they weren't paying for it. Charter was paying for this cooperative cooperative advertising, the reason being the Charter it had a was interest. was it then, that it cost — they said that the reason they upped the price $20 a box was they — the inflationary conditions, so they had to renegotiate the contract, but didn't renegotiate with any of their other customers. 
Well, Your Honor, from the vendor's perspective, this was a transaction that appeared to be a way to increase cooperative advertising. It cost the vendors no money. They were told by charter that Arthur Anderson had approved the transaction. That's alleged in the Barford indictment. Then they went home and talked to their own auditors. How do you account for this unusual transaction? The auditor said you cannot uh, record any revenues from the transaction. They didn't record any revenues. They expected Charter to do the same thing, to, to well, not but, record revenues but, uh, that's, that's what the rules require. That, that's not the allegation of the complaint. I, I, I thought the allegation of the complaint was is that they, they knew that this was a fraud and they participated in the fraud. I yes, they, they, they do allege it. I'm merely pointing out that in the bar. But, I mean, that, so that your answer doesn't seem to be good at on legal point. Well, we, we say that if you take the complaint at face value and you don't even consider the Barford indictment that they cite, that it still is a classic example of give, knowingly giving substantial assistance to someone else that is making misstatements to investors because these vendors didn't make any misstatement to investors. Nobody relied on their sales correspondence. It sat uh, in a file drawer until long after the stock had gone all the way up and come all the way down. That's the essence of the scheme. You said that they... They're home free because they didn't themselves make any statement to investors, but they set up Charter to make those statements to swell its revenues, revenues that it, in fact, didn't have. But now Congress's policy judgment here is that the SEC, an expert agency that is impartial, should evaluate a claim of that sort and decide whether to proceed. That's if they are aiders and abettors, which is what Congress covered. And I again, again go back to is there another category, or is everyone either charter, the person whose stock is at stake, company whose stock is at stake, and everyone else is in an aid or I take it that that's your position. Well, it's either the the company whose stock is uh, is in question, or you're an aid or an abettor. Uh, you are only a primary violator under, under central bank if each and every element of 10b5 liability is satisfied, including reliance on your statement, including the in connection with test, and including loss causation. None of those tests are satisfied here. But what is satisfied is Section 20e, which says, did they uh, knowingly give substantial assistance to somebody who is committing a fraud? And that's that fits this case like a glove. If and we Congress accept, wanted the SEC to address it. Your theory of the case, and we then get another case in which an accountant or an attorney who prepares the statement for uh, publication to the investors and then gives it to Charter, uh, and they are before us, uh, could we find liability under 10b-5 as to the accountants and still rule and still keep our ruling in favor of your client here? Uh, it really and depends so, on the circumstances. Would, and if so, what would be the rationale? Some attorneys are control persons within corporations. An in-house counsel that drafts a disclosure statement uh, which contains a falsehood may be liable, uh, as in the McConville case, which the Court recently considered. Individuals may be liable. How about outside accountants and attorneys who d- deliberately and, and directly participate in, in negotiating or in, in drafting the, dis- the false disclosure statements? I Could they be liable and under your theory of the case, but uh, your client not liable? Uh, it, it's possible. Your Honor, at the end of your... Well, what about in this case? Let's be specific. As I understood an earlier answer of yours, the answer was that Arthur Anderson knew what was going on. Uh, if, I, if you are correct, and I, as I understand it, that's not what was charged, but if, if that's correct, Arthur Anderson did know what was going on. Can Arthur Anderson be held liable under 10b-5, Absolutely. Uh, whereas your client cannot? Yes, sir. The reason and is the fundamental. Is. The, the reason is they issued opinions that were circulated to investors that were attributed to them and which were authorized by them. And if a lawyer does the same thing, if Steve Shapiro writes an opinion letter and cir- circulates it to investors and it's full of falsehoods, what, I can be held liable for what that. If Arthur Anderson, what if Arthur Anderson uh, has a footnote in there saying, this is okay, uh, because we have uh, this, this letter from, I forget which one of the, the two respondents it was, saying there's been inflation and therefore we've got to renegotiate the prices and jack them up 20 percent. Arthur Anderson knows that that is false, and the respondent who made it knows that it is false. Can the respondent who made it then be held liable? Only people who speak to the market and yeah, but doesn't doesn't the, doesn't the respondent in that case know that it is likely that the auditor is going to indicate the basis for its 
statement that the transaction is okay. Well, and therefore, isn't it reasonable to suppose that they anticipated that their statement would be communicated to the market? That is just aiding and abetting. And, in fact, Congress dealt with that squarely in Section 303. But there's a communication to the market there, and oh, there yes. is a reason to expect that communication. Doesn't that, that make any difference? That is not sufficient. Congress addressed that in Section 303 of Sarbanes-Oxley, and it held that any person uh, said any person, including a vendor, that misleads an auditor uh, can be held liable in an SEC proceeding only, not in a private suit. It excluded private actions. Word only in there? Pardon me? Is the word only in there? The word exclusively is in, in the there. And my so friend, you have an independent defense quite apart from, from the construction of 10b-5? We, we rely on 20e and 303 of Sarbanes-Oxley. And my friend has made the Which argument. I thought speak about aiders and abettors. It's talking about an aider and a better that misleads an auditor, and then the auditor it issues is, a false it certification. Aiders and a betters, and again, we get back to the question, if there's nothing in this world other than the company that puts out the false statement and the aider and a better, well, there's uh, oh, no, something there, in between. Your Honor, there are other persons that are control persons uh, within a company well, we're that are liable. we're taking those out. We're talking about independent actors. Independent actors that don't speak to the markets and cause direct reliance on their own statements are aiders and abettors, and they're supposed to be dealt with by the SEC, an expert agency. Now, my, you know, my friend made the argument about Sarbanes-Oxley that there is a savings clause in that provision that preserves other remedies, but if you look at the legislative history, it says explicitly we are preserving SEC remedies. We want the SEC to pursue these suits, and Congress refused in 2002 in Sarbanes-Oxley to reinstate the aiding and abetting private uh, liability you cause know, of action. Mr. Shapiro, if in the law of torts, uh, in the restatement of, of, of torts, um, or in other areas of, um, of the law, there's uh, some third classification that's between aider and abetter in principle? Uh, I don't know the answer, although in these statutes themselves, there are such provisions not included in Section 10B. For example, in Section 18A, if you cause some other person to make a false statement in a financial statement, you can be held liable, but they're not invoking it in Section 18. Same thing under Section 17. Uh, if you engage in a scheme to cause some falsehood, you can be prosecuted by the government. But nowhere has Congress said that an individual litigant can bring a claim like that without regard for reliance and in connection with and the loss well, causation let's, let's, let's assume there's reliance and loss causation. Let me ask a question very similar to what Justice Ginsburg has posed a couple of times. Uh, she has said, is there a third category? My question is, is there an overlap? Can there be an overlap? Uh, no, I don't think there Why? can be. Because Congress intended in Section 20E to have an expert agency address these cases and not to have the trial. Congress intended do this. an expert agency to address solely aiding and abetting cases. The Which question, is defined My broadly. question is if there is an overlap. Uh, a, can there be an overlap? And, and if so, uh, I don't see why Congress is in, intent to reserve aiding and abetting alone to the agency affects the determination of this case. We believe they're separate categories and that Central Bank tells us exactly who the primary violator is. He's somebody who makes a statement that investors rely on in connection with securities transactions, and that is not these vendors. That is exactly what Section 20E addresses and commits. But, it's but good could you amend that to say uh, — you don't insist that he make a statement that investors — he could — he, he could engage in a deceptive practice Absolutely. directed at investors. Absolutely. We don't quarrel over that, Justice Scalia. Uh, the, the for example, for example, let's assume in this case the Charter said, uh, we've, we, we've got to let the investors know uh, that our cost of doing business is going up, and, and we want you to make an announcement yes. uh, that you're jacking up your price 20 percent. In that case, there would be primary liability. Absolutely. Why in that case is there not also aiding and abetting? We know perfectly well why they're doing it, and they're doing it solely to aid and abet charter uh, in, in, in its scheme, uh, themselves enjoying a wash transaction. Why isn't that both primary and aiding and abetting? Well, it, it's primary because there is the communication to the market that, we, that is We know it's primary. Here. Why isn't it also aiding and abetting? You could call it uh, both you of those. can call it, why isn't there things. the kind of overlap which raises the question that Justice Ginsburg has raised? You, you can't have primary liability, which they're asserting here, without the statement to the market, and it can be a statement by conduct, and it can be a statement by nodding so, of So you are saying 
saying there can be an overlap, but there is no overlap that helps the uh, the, the uh, petitioner in this case. Oh, yes. Uh, nodding the head is the same thing as saying yes, but it has to be made directly to an investor and cause reliance by that investor. That's what's missing here. So there, there's nothing wrong with the Eighth Circuit's decision. It didn't address that refinement because it has no bearing on this case. Uh, so there's no point in reversing the decision. It has to be affirmed, in our view, for want of reliance, for want of loss causation, for lack of in connection with, and because, most importantly, Congress intended to remove this category of case and commit it to an expert agency as part of its very important reform effort to deal with excessive litigation that was harming our economy. This was an important concept for Congress, and it said it twice, first in the PSLRA in 1995, then in 2002 in the Sarbanes-Oxley law, and it removed even claims that you mislead an auditor under Section 303 of Sarbanes-Oxley. And there's no savings clause there for private actions. Congress refused to permit the private actions. Instead, it permitted the SEC to bring uh, intentional misconduct cases under Section 20E or negligent misconduct cases under Section 303 or under Section 13. And the SEC has a broad panoply of remedies. It doesn't have to just allege intentional. Does the SEC distinguish this kind of situation where silence is the essence of the thing for the deceiver, silence, not speech? Does the SEC distinguish this from aiding and abetting? Well, the, the SEC's uh, view is the one rejected by the Solicitor General, and that's this purpose and effect standard that's been advocated, which we think is hopelessly vague, and it overrides the reliance requirement, it overrides the in-connection with requirement, and it overrides loss causation. Uh, that, Shapiro, what not is to mention the strongest Central Bank. case in your view for the reliance requirement? Uh, Central Bank itself. Central Bank itself. Yes, because the court there said that even though the bank did something that was uh, a secret agreement that facilitated the issuer's distribution of a false prospectus and caused all the harm to the shareholders, it was a direct sine qua non cause of all that harm, that that was merely aiding and abetting because there was no reliance on anything that the bank stated or anything that the bank had a duty to state because of a fiduciary relationship. Now, the vendors here are even far more removed from investors than the bank was in Central Bank. The investors knew about the bank in Central Bank, and they were relying on it to do its job. But that was not sufficient because it made no statement that the investors relied on. There's no communication here between these vendors and investors. There's no way you could And your judgment is the reliance requirement an element of the violation or of the uh, private cause of action? It's the private cause of action. An important point, Justice Stevens, because the SEC is not burdened with any of these elusive inquiries into but-for causation, speculative uh, questions of indirect reliance. None of that burdens the SEC. And the SEC also has power to distribute funds to investors. This is the better mousetrap that Congress uh, prescribed for these kinds of cases. It didn't want the trial lawyers to bring class actions that always result in settlements. Thank you, Mr. Shapiro. We thank the Court. Mr. Hungar. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals erred to the extent it held that Section 10B applies only to verbal misrepresentations or omissions. But the Court correctly held that this Court's decision in Central Bank forecloses petitioner's claim here. Like the plaintiff in Central Bank, Petitioner cannot establish reliance, a critical element of the Section 10B implied right of action. Neither petitioner nor the market relied on or was even aware of any deceptive conduct Mr. or statement. Hunger, I want to be sure I understand one part of the government's position. You do take the position that there was a violation of 10B-5. We haven't taken a position on that question, Your Honor. We take the position that there was deceptive conduct alleged, the, one of the elements of a 10b-5 violation, but not the only element. Well, uh, were the other elements present? As I say, we have not taken a, I mean, materiality, for instance, the in connection with requirement, scienter, we haven't addressed those questions and have not but taken But you have an opinion as to whether there was a violation of 10b in this case? No, Your Honor. You don't have an we opinion? We haven't taken a position. And, and I know you haven't taken a position, but I'm just wondering if you have an opinion. No, Your Honor. <laughs> The, the other element, we haven't addressed the other elements, and, and those raise the questions that we have, because there's no need to resolve them in this case, and because they weren't resolved by the Court of Appeals or by the District Court, 
We have chosen to focus on what we think is dispositive and what was raised and decided below, which is reliance. You have not reached an opinion as to whether there was a violation of the statute. Correct. Has the SEC publicly taken a position on that question? Uh, I'm not sure of the answer to that question, Your Honor. Certainly, individual commissioners have given speeches and testified before Congress to the effect that the Commission voted, in this case, uh, to agree with our position on deception, the position that's expressed in our brief, and uh, by a three-to-two vote to disagree with the position on reliance that is expressed in our brief. But I don't know that there's been any official SEC Commission statement to that effect that's been publicly released. Uh, As I said, the, the only deceptive conduct that was allegedly committed by respondents in this case involves the backdating of contracts and the false justifications for the price increase. That conduct was never disclosed to the market at any time during the, the class period and therefore could not have been relied on by the market or by petitioners. And as a consequence, under this Court's decisions in Central Bank and in BASIC, uh, reliance cannot be established because the presumption of reliance that petitioner seeks to invoke requires, as a prerequisite to its invocation, the existence of a publicly disseminated statement from the defendant that was disseminated to and therefore relied on by the market. That did not happen here with respect to respondents. Could the SEC get any monetary recovery for the investors? On your theory, you say, yes, it's a deceptive practice, but this belongs in the SEC's bailiwick, not in private suits. Yes, Your Honor. Private suits, obviously, they're seeking damages for the decline in the share price. What could the SEC, suppose it should take up this case, get by way of remedy? The SEC is entitled to obtain uh, civil fines as well as uh, disgorgement remedies. But there's no disgorgement here because the vendors didn't get anything. For them, it was a wash. Well, I don't know. That, I, I believe in the, not in this case, but in the Adelphia case, which is uh, well, But this case, disgorgement would not be a remedy. You say fines, but those would be payable to the government, right? If I may, yeah, yes and no, I think, is the answer to that question, because under the fair funds provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Section 308 of Sarbanes-Oxley, the SEC is authorized to take fines and distribute those, add those to disgorgement relief and distribute them to investors, and they have But there would be no disgorgement relief. Well, I'm not sure I can agree with that point. In in the Adelphia matter — What profits did the vendors get? For them, it was a wash. They got — what do they have to disgorge? Well, they obtained — at least it appears that they obtained advertising that, that presumably had some value, although they didn't, it didn't cost them anything. And, and presumably the SEC could seek the value of that advertising. As I said, in the Adelphia matter, where the SEC did pursue the vendors that assisted Adelphia in a somewhat similar transaction, it obtained substantial monetary recoveries from them. Uh, I, but did I, they receive something that they then disgorged? Well, the allegations were similar uh, to those presented here. But in any event, certainly uh, the SEC has the authority to proceed in that fashion. And in additionally, the, the Justice Department has the ability to proceed criminally and obtain substantial monetary sanctions, either as part of a deferred prosecution agreement, as part of a restitutionary sanction, and the like. But the fundamental point is that for the private right of action to apply, as this Court said in Central Bank, all of the elements of the private cause of action must be satisfied with respect to the individual defendant. That is the law. Do you agree with Mr. Shapiro, what I understood to be his argument, that 20E, the aider and a better statute, more or less occupies the field here, and there's no role for additional 10B5 liability? Well, I wouldn't say that it occupies the field per se, but what it does do is be, be, given the timing, this Court's decision in Central Bank in 1994, followed by Congress's considering the question whether to provide for secondary liability in private actions and its decision not to authorize such secondary liability, what it does clearly suggest is that this Court ought not adopt the expansive view of the implied right of action that Petitioner is urging, but instead, both because the Court is appropriately cautious in expanding uh, liability under implied rights of action and because Congress has now looked at this question not once but twice and has declined to provide uh, secondary liability for secondary actors uh, under the cause of action. Do you think that you are either a principal or an aider and a better? 
you can — it's possible for someone to be both, but in order to be both, they must have sat, they must have satisfied all of the elements. For the same act I'm talking about. For the same act. Yes. For instance, an auditor who uh, certifies false financial statements and, and allows that its, its certification to be, uh, to be public, publicly disseminated, thereby aiding and assisting in the issuer's primary fraud, but is also a — uh, quite likely to be a primary violator because they have, in, have spoken to the market, the market is relying on their statements and, and is aware that they're making them, and so they would be both a primary violator but could presumably be pursued as an aider and a better. I don't think there's any uh, preclusion of liability under both, but in order to be in that category, you must be a primary violator, and here petitioners have not established and cannot establish the reliance element with respect to respondents because nothing that respondents said or did was disseminated to the market during the class And period. I take it, in your view, they cannot establish the in connection with argument? We have not taken a position. There's no reliance, but that, there's, but that there is in connection. Your Honor, I, I would hesitate to say that, Your Honor, because the SEC and the United States do not have to establish reliance in criminal or civil enforcement proceedings, but we do have to establish in connection with, and we think they are different. We think reliance adds something more than what in connection with requires. And so I certainly would, would, would urge the Court not to suggest that merely because reliance is, is not established, therefore in connection with must also not be established. And, and that is one of the reasons why we think that the in connection with question is best resolved, not in this case, but in a case, case where it's been squarely presented and preferably a government enforcement action where the government has an opportunity to, uh, to tailor the case in an appropriate fashion. The Court, as I said, has it's been — It's a, at least a little awkward for you to say we should wait for a case in which it's been fully presented when the argument you're making here wasn't fully presented, or at least not decided, below. I think it was, Your Honor. It was certainly briefed and argued in both the District Court and the Court of Appeals. The District Court squarely resolved it at page 41A of the Petition Appendix. The Court of Appeals addressed reliance at page 10A of the Petition Appendix. It did not give it a fully orbed discussion. I understood the Court of Appeals' decision to be based on its determination that there was no deceptive act because there was no statement or omission. But on page 10A, they also talk about reliance, Your Honor. And what's important here to understand is that petitioner's theory of reliance rests on a misstatement, because they say the market it's — it's a basic presumption of reliance based on the fraud on the market theory case. That's the only allegation of reliance in the complaint. That requires something publicly disseminated. The only thing that was publicly disseminated is the statement. What the Court of Appeals said is that doesn't work. There was no reliance because respondents didn't make any publicly disseminated statements. So it's actually a, a — perhaps not a complete, but certainly a perfectly reasonable resolution of the reliance question. And therefore, it is squarely presented. Petitioners raised reliance in their petition at I page 25, see. in their opening brief at pages 37 to 40. It's squarely presented in the I'm looking at the Court of Appeals decision, which I thought uh, just said that there was no deceptive device. Your, Your Honor, on page 10A, the second line, the first full sentence, speaking of Motorola and Scientific Atlanta, they did not issue any misstatement relied upon by the investing public. And then it goes on the next sentence, none of the alleged financial misrepresentations by charter was made by or even with the approval of the vendors, that is, the respondents. Again, as I say, it's not as complete a discussion of the reliance issue as we would have thought appropriate if we had been writing the opinion, but it certainly does touch on the question, and we think it's fully presented. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hungar. Uh, Mr. Grossman, you have three minutes. Thank you. I, uh, <coughs> excuse me. I have three quick points to make. Uh, one, Mr. Shapiro and Mr. Hunger both said that the advertising cost the vendors no money. Well, if the advertising cost them no money, why was there a contract that they entered into for the purchase of advertising? Clearly, it was designed to give the false appearance that Charter had this additional $17 million in revenue. Number two, the SEC did take a position in the Simpson case. They submitted an amicus brief. Uh, Commissioner Cox testified before a House committee uh, this, this past spring that they wanted to submit the same brief on the same points, uh, supporting the position that we are taking here. Uh, and uh, the testimony of Commissioner Cox is appended uh, to the briefs of uh, uh, <coughs> Congressman Franks and uh, Conyers. Uh, number three, Central Bank did not turn on reliance. 
uh, central bank turned on the issue of deceptive conduct. There was no deceptive conduct in that case. The plaintiffs conceded there was no deceptive conduct. The Court of Appeals and the District Court said there was no deceptive conduct. It was strictly an aiding and abetting case. With respect to the reliance issue with central bank, what the Court did say was on the plaintiff's theory he wouldn't have to prove reliance. He only had to prove that he that the defendant substantially assisted a defendant who engaged in a primary violation, but he would not have to prove any reliance by the aiding and abetter. Uh, number three, with respect to 20E, uh, how do my friends on the other side read 20E in connection with Section 9 and Section 18 of the Exchange Act, each of which provide remedies and private rights of action uh, against multiple parties? Under their definition, that would appear to be displaced by 20E. 20E was not designed, it was not intended to do anything but to give the SEC the right to bring the very type of aiding and abetting action that this court barred in Central Bank. Thank you, Mr. Grossman. The case is submitted.